Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Midsummer Festival, Melbourne's queer cultural festival, is on officially from the 21st of January until the 12th of February. Uh, Some shows have already previewed, some shows are about to open. One of the shows that we're going to talk about right now uh, is called Thrive, Queer Voices Out Loud. It's a new theatre work and importantly a new verbatim theatre work that is capturing the voices of uh, LGBT. TQIA plus people from central Victoria. I'm joined in the studio by its director, playwright and producer, Chaney Caddy, uh, together with one of the members of the cast, Izzy Weisskopf, uh, who are going to tell us about Thrive, which is presented by, I believe it's the Castlemaine-based company, Black Apple Theatre. Yeah, we are. We're, uh, we were transplanted to Castlemaine in 2020, like so many... Melburnians. Um, so now we're on uh, Jar Jar country, um, still making art in a beautiful, creative, exceptionally queer country town. Izzy, are you a, a Castlemanian by birth or by relocation or what's your connection to that part of the country? Gosh, I would love to. I would love to be a, a Castlemanian. I did look up house prices when we... <laughs> When we um, had a rehearsal there, but um, I found out about um, this production through because I went to Ballarat University for my acting degree, um, and we got emailed. Um, Cheney uh, sort of put it to one of our teachers, and then she sort of disseminated it around for the the students to be like, hey, if there's any like queer people who want to audition for this really cool verbatim play. Um, so I sort of have a connection to like, you know, the rural um, sort of central Victoria, like through that way. And that's how I found out about it. But we have done lots of rehearsals in Castlemaine and I would absolutely love to live there, but it's a bit out of my price range currently. Is <laughs> yeah. um, it for you in terms of creating this particular work of theatre, the fact that it is verbatim and as you said, it, it's telling real life stories of real people. What challenges does that present as a playwright to not only sculpt a work that is dramatically satisfying but which also honours the truth of the people whose stories you are telling? Uh, Well, I had, because there's five stories that are featured in Thrive, two from people under 25 and three from people over 70. And I had about, on average, kind of two hours of interview from each of them. And then I had to create a play that was like maximum two hours long, um, but it was actually surprisingly easy because this, um, even with people that are separated by like decades and decades, there was like so many points of connection and commonality in the experience. And I was hearing all these interviews in isolation because the people I interview don't necessarily know each other. And I would be hearing like these echoes um, where this young person would be like describing an experience and then someone would be, like, describing the same experience. Um, And that was really, like, really beautiful and made it so easy to kind of weave the stories together because 
the voices really kind of speak to each other in Thrive. Um, Those kind of common experiences are presumably common across time because if you're speaking to young people, I know you also spoke to kind of trans legend Julie Peters, for example, who transitioned uh, a couple of decades ago. And so are they positive points of commonality or are they distressing or a mix of All both? of the above. Like there's some things where um, there's this like immense frustration from the older people in Thrive that things haven't got better for young people. Um, and then there's also like this, which I think a lot of people outside the queer community don't see Um, they only hear these stories about, oh, you know, it's hard coming out, but they don't understand, like, this immense joy that exists in our community and, like, this incredible sense of connection and belonging and um, the way people just, like, live their lives um, when they live their lives authentically. It's just, um, it's just like this really kind of vivid way of being alive. And I think that's one of the things that comes through in Thrive as well. It's it's nice to talk about queer joy as opposed to yeah. kind of queer angst, for example. It's one of the reasons last year my favourite TV show of the year was Heartstopper. Yeah, just because I know it, that one. it celebrated joy uh, yeah. and the 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 joy of coming out, the joy of falling in love, as opposed to I don't know focusing on kind of guilt and shame and AIDS and all those things. Um, Izzy, uh, as a performer in Thrive, talk to us about that the way the the play expresses queer joy. There are so many moments of queer joy that happen in it. Um, Like every single time I read this play, like I always end up crying no matter how many times I perform it. Chaney can attest to this because it's just, um, it's so beautiful, but it really goes on this journey. It goes on this journey of like, you know, angst and acceptance and dating um and the moments of like interconnectedness too between all of these characters where they're not talking to each other but you feel this commonality um is really wonderful and for my character in particular Kay who is this um sort of in her 60s um older woman who is a lesbian um and who's also a teacher um and so like a lot of her journey was creating a really beautiful, safe space for, like, um, the kids in her classroom, um, you know, in a time when that wasn't really the typical thing, um, particularly, like, for the queer kids in her classroom. Um, And she has this monologue at the end that just, like, brings me to my knees every single time. Um, And, like, I feel it so deeply. Like, it just punches me in the gut every single time. Um, And it's all about um, just wanting her kids to know that they were loved Um, And, like, I feel that message resound, like, throughout the play and also throughout my life as well. Um, And, like, I came to the play at a time when I really needed to hear that message and I relearn it every single time I do it. Um, And I'm going to – it's so amazing because, um, you know, we've had reviews where people have been saying, like, this show is, like, a life-affirming experience – And that's so wonderful for me. And, like, I feel such joy at that, to be a part of that experience, um, to, like, to perform it and then to feel it as well. Yeah. Izzy has some of the funniest lines in the play too. (laughs) Like, you don't realise this 
but queers are really funny. Yeah. Like we're we're a funny bunch. Um, uh, yeah, there's there's this great bit where they're all all the characters in the play are sitting around this kitchen table talking about falling in love for the first time. And uh, um, Izzy's character, real life person, Kay, is talking about. Um, how, like, when she's in her 30s, she's like, I'm never going to date again. I can't go through this again. If you see me falling in love, just, like, take me out and shoot me. <laughs> and then she's talking about meeting her now partner of 30 yeah. years and just be like, oh, no. <laughs> you can finish it. It's your life. And it's like um, she's talking about when, like, Elizabeth comes into her life and, oh, and, and like, and they have, like, I think, like, lunch for the first time and Elizabeth, like, comes in and, oh, and I've got that book and, you know, I've got that mug and, you know, I've got that thing and that thing and it's this beautiful, like, commonality between the two of them and then Kay's just like, oh, no, oh, no, of course I'm going to fall in love with you. <laughs> but the clincher, the clincher is when she... Yeah. The clincher is when um, Elizabeth puts her plate on the floor for the dog to lick <laughs> and she's like I knew that was when I knew I was done I was done <laughs> ah, love it <sighs> Jenny in terms of creating uh, a theatrical work like Thrive Queer Voices Out Loud um, how important is it to not just be telling queer stories but to be documenting queer stories because this is a, a work that um interweaves the the real life journeys of three people over 65 and two 25 year olds so uh, the the contemporary experience is important to tell but documenting the past and making sure that our queer elders are acknowledged and celebrated how important was that aspect of shaping the project it was really vital because those stories are going to be lost and we've already lost so much queer history because the generation before those people in Thrive um, was so invisible and that history has just largely disappeared. Um, But it's not just important to, like, preserve the stories, it's important to share them because um, empirically, like, people don't learn about queer history Queer kids growing up now, um, I think Minus 18 did a study which, like, overwhelmingly showed that um, school kids don't learn about queer history and that that was actually causing kind of distress and that teachers and young people, like, desperately wanted to have these stories. Um, Because I think one of the... Certainly my experience... um, growing up queer was just this sense of being in a vacuum and just never having an image of what my life could look like. Um, So I always think about it as like holding the door open. So people like Julie and Kay and Max, even though I didn't know at the time because growing up there was no queer representation, but they were making a space for me to exist in. Um, And it, that like is my job now is to hold the door open for the generation coming up behind me so that they can look to the future and see that they will have like a place in the world. And that they will have a future. And that's what queer history Mm. does for us. And I really feel like that door being held open for me, like I feel very held by this play and I feel like it really creates that space actually 
And it's funny because, like you say, that like you didn't have um, a vision of what your life could look like. And, like, Kay says the exact same thing as well. So it's, again, like th- those commonalities that appear throughout. I think I was, mm. like, 35 when I did Kay's interview and she said she described this experience of being 15 and walking home from school at Thomastown and thinking, like, there's no one like me in the world. Like I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. And when she said that to me in an interview in a small country hall in Glenline, it was the first time, like I have never felt as seen as I ever felt in that moment. And like that sense just kind of expanded outwards. And like, you know, uh, Kay was born in 1956 and I was born in 1986 and that's kind of a little bit of a damning indictment on our that we're still having that same experience. But I also think like we have we have a huge responsibility, but we also have so much power to change that for people. Black Apple Theatre's production Thrive, Queer Voices Out Loud, is showing as part of the Midsummer Festival at the Bluestone Church Art Space in Footscray from the 24th until the 28th of January at 7.30pm each night. You can get tickets through Midsummer. that's midsummer.org.au, and you can also check out blackapplethetre.com for more information about the production, the creative team, and uh, indeed the company who are putting it on. Midsummer Festival is running from the 21st of January to the 12th of February. It's Melbourne's long-running queer cultural festival and as works like Thrive, Queer Voices Out Loud so clearly document, uh, we still urgently and desperately need festivals like Midsummer to connect people, to connect audiences and to show all the different facets of the queer experience. Thanks so much for having us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Chaney and Izzy, thanks so much for coming in. Midsummer Festival, Melbourne's queer cultural festival, is in full swing almost. The festival doesn't officially kick off until the weekend, but uh, across Melbourne, exhibitions and productions are previewing and opening and ready to wow audiences. One of the productions that uh, previewed last night and is officially opening tonight is The Gospel According to Jesus, Queen of Heaven, uh, written by playwright Joe Clifford, who joins us in the studio now. Joe, we're rather lucky to have you here because uh, you live over... Is it, is it Edinburgh where you're I still based? I live in Edinburgh. Well, I am very, very lucky to be here too. What brings you to Australia? I'm guessing, given that this is an independent production at 45 Downstairs, mm. you is it coincidence that you well, are Well, it's kind of coincidence. I got... Um, I've rather unexpectedly got invited to Karachi in Pakistan last week for the um, for performances of an old play of mine called Light in the Village that has been translated into Urdu and was being performed in a theatre festival there. And we all discovered the dates happened to meet. And I thought, oh, OK, Pakistan is halfway to Australia. Why not come here too? Well, I'm glad you have. Because so it, am I. Yeah. Not only does it give me an opportunity to chat to you about this uh, play, which some would see as revolutionary and some would see as long overdue, but I know you're also doing a talk at 45 Downstairs mm, that's right, yeah. uh, about the play itself. But take us back to when you first 
kind of developed the the, the seed or the germ of this play about um, a transgender Jesus talking to us, telling parables, talking to the audience. How did it begin? Well, it's a very, very long story. It began way back in about 1995 uh, when I realised I had to start writing about being trans. I mean, I was still in a, still in a closet. There was just nothing about being trans around in those days. Um, and I started off, uh, well, I, <laughs> I used to be a fashionable playwright in those days, but as soon as I started to write about being trans, nobody wanted to know about it. And uh, I found I couldn't get original work, so I knew I'd have to stage it myself. Um, and I actually wrote something about the Old Testament first because I was really curious about why, why do people hate us so much? Why do I hate myself so much? Um, and I thought maybe it's something about the... Something about the Bible. <laughs> Who knows? Anyway, so I read a play and performed a play called God's New Frock, uh, which 1991, I guess, in Edinburgh and Glasgow. Uh, and then <laughs> I kind of forgot about it because there was such a lot else going on. And um, to my amazement, it got translated into Italian. And uh, around about, uh, I don't know when it was, 2008, seven, I found myself in Florence. And they loved it in Italy, this play. They just loved it. And um, it went on a big tour. And I said, OK, why don't you commission me to write a play about the New Testament? You give me a flat in Florence next summer for three weeks and I'll write you this play. And that's what happened. And then the theatre company didn't want the play and so I put it on myself. Now, what happened was that I, to prepare myself... I really read the Gospels over and over and over again, and I was so moved by what I found there. I was so moved by the discovery that Jesus really was there for oppressed people and people that were suffering from prejudice. He really, and I thought, God, if he knew me, he he loved me too. Uh, and I wanted to write something kind of in tribute to him. And I don't know where the idea came from, but suddenly I thought, okay, this is this is... Jesus coming back to earth in the present day as a transgender woman. And this is what she says. This is her parables. This is her sermon. This is her blessing. And this is how she gives communion. And that's where the play came from. Now, I grew up with Christianity, but I'm not a person of faith. Mm. But nonetheless, uh, the, the Christ that I was raised with mm. is so far removed from the Christ of uh, the, the right-wing kind of Christian militia and, and, and so forth, who uh, the, the sheer fact that in the Bible we see Jesus hanging out with people who are reviled and hated. Uh, absolutely. Sex workers, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, people who collect taxes. Absolutely. Um, uh, as opposed to the, the, the kind of hypocrisy and mm. arrogance yeah. uh, and holier-than-thou attitude of some, certainly not all, but the louder contemporary Christians. Well, they're, they're on the side of the Pharisees, aren't they? That's who they are. Um, and Jesus, well, <laughs> in the play, uh, I was going to say, I say, Jesus says, <laughs> remember, all of you, I never said, beware the transgendered and the queer. I said, beware the self-righteous and the hypocrite. Beware those who condemn others and think themselves righteous. Now, you were condemned when the play first opened. Oh, my uh, There God. were religious protesters out the front, people who, of course, had not even seen the no. work. Uh, I was, I mean, it was so strange because I thought people were probably going to be very bored by the play because it was religious and... 
<laughs> but now I, I remember I turned up just 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 for the first night, and the street outside the theatre was full of angry people. I mean, it was full of full of Protestants with their placards that said, uh, "God says my son is not." a pervert, and it was full of Catholics with the Virgin Mary, who they were praying to, because apparently I had uh, offended her terribly. And uh, you may know that in Glasgow, normally Catholics and Protestants hate each other, but I did my bit for church unity because they were all united in hating me. And I was terrified. I'm not surprised, given that these are the same religious groups who kick the shit out of each other uh, at football games. And would have really been delighted to kick the shit out of me. Luckily, I nipped in through the stage door at the back, which they hadn't noticed. But what was extraordinary about it was that the BBC filmed the demonstration. It went out on the internet, uh, and within a couple of days, there were literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people, again, who knew nothing about the play, who all had a great time saying how rubbish it was, how horrible the play was, what a terrible idea it was, how much they would like to kill me, and they told me how much they would like to kill me in all these very difficult, different and horrible ways, how delighted they will be on the Day of Judgment to see me go down to hell. Uh, and it was just extraordinary, because uh, all the tabloid press, they uh, united in hating me and mocking me as well. But I guess what that taught me was that the play was saying something important, because otherwise, why would so many people get so upset and cross about a play that was performing for five nights in a tiny 30-seat theatre. It was only seen by 150 people, and yet there were about 300,000 people with opinions about it. So I learned a lot. Well, Jesus says, love your enemies, and now I, and I began to understand why, because they taught me such a valuable lesson. Now, this production of The Gospel According to Jesus, Queen of Heaven, that uh, opens at 45 downstairs tonight and runs through until the 29th of January, it's a remount of uh, an uh, earlier production mm-hmm. that was uh, had a, a season at Theatre Works in St yeah. Kilda. I missed that season, uh, mm-hmm. so I am so glad that I had yeah. the chance to see it last night. Now, I cry easily, I will admit. I cry at sad things, mm-hmm. but I also cry at beautiful things. Mm-hmm. Art moves me. That's yeah. one of the reasons I do this show yeah. and one of the reasons I love yeah. seeing work. I was crying a lot last night, mm. wiping away tears, because there are just such sincere, gentle and loving messages mm-hmm. um, using the form of parables, for example, that are familiar to us from from Bible studies as kids or uh, perhaps from reading the Bible today if you're a, a person of faith. So there's so much that resonates, but which you've, to use the vernacular, you've queered the message, but the message does not change regardless of the physicality of the person who is delivering that message. Exactly. No. Well, love, we all need love. (laughs) Love never fails, as dear old St. Paul said. Um, And I think I'm so glad that that came came across to you. And I'm so glad you cried, if you forgive me, because it's very important that people understand. I, I think especially now, I mean, terrible things are happening back in my country just now. Well, the fact that the UK's nickname for many people is now Turf Island, for Tur- example. Yeah, exactly. And these people are constantly, every moment, putting out the message that 
someone like myself is a danger to women, is a danger to children. Uh, this is, this is, we are being demonised, we are particularly being used in a very cynical and nasty and irresponsible way by the Conservative government in Westminster to distract from the catastrophic failures of their policies in every field. And this is a very dangerous situation we're in. And The history books show us what happens when we demonise uh, minorities. Well, well exactly. Um, and it's kind of very convenient in the short term, but it has disastrous consequences. Um, I'm very proud and very glad that I live in Scotland, where we did pass at least a half-decent bill <laughs> that, that showed a little bit of kindness and has created this terrible shitstorm of hatred and prejudice. Um, and it's very lovely that I can use the words of Queen Jesus to resist that and just to affirm our common humanity and um, just the need to love and understand and be kind to one another. As you said, Joe, you performed the original mm. season. What's it like seeing other people take on a role that you know so intimately? Well, I've uh, I've written a lot of plays, about 114, I guess, and uh, always um, because I was blocked as a performer. But always up up to then, I've written for other people to perform, and it's a it's a joy in a way because obviously when I write a part, I give it all my all my intelligence, all my love, all my skill. And I hand it over to the performer as a present. I say, look, this is for you. you. This is a chance for you to show your skill and your intelligence and your sensitivity. And, of course, if, you've, if, you're, if you're working with a, a wonderful performer like Kristen Smith, that's what you get back. And so it becomes back to me, I don't know, enriched and made even more beautiful. It's just a joy. There are also beautiful um, choral elements in oh, this well. work. Uh, a four-piece choir. Was that in the original script or is that something that has been uh, created or added for this production? Well, originally we had a, we worked, I worked with a musician, but that's because I was so frightened of performing. I thought audiences <laughs> will, oh, I need somebody to support me. Um, but the musician, hey, gorgeous, gorgeous music he wrote. Wow. But um, he was very expensive. I mean, the insurance on his instruments. <laughs> yeah, and so we couldn't afford <clears throat> we couldn't afford him uh, after that, which is a bit of a shame. So I've done it just on my own. Uh, but it's really wonderful to to have a choir and to have to have the words translated into Latin to be sung by a choir. Oh my God! I, I mean, I haven't heard them live. But I've seen the film and heard them. That's just beautiful. Well, you're in for a treat tonight, then. Yeah. <laughs> now, Joe, earlier you were talking about your plays being translated into yeah. different languages. Uh, I know that the Brazilian uh, mm. translation, well, Portuguese, uh, but performed uh, across Brazil, was a particularly significant uh, translation because it not only helped uh, an individual get their gender identity changed on their, their, oh, yeah. their documents, for example, but it created significant dialogue nationally across Brazil. Do you think... Well, did you expect the play to have that sort of uh, impact on on a country but also on individuals when you were writing it? Well, no, of course I didn't. When I was performing in this tiny theatre, I thought probably this will never happen again. But I was kind of determined to make it. But I never dreamt for a second that it would go to Brazil uh, or that it would come to Australia, come to that. Um, so this is kind of amazing. Uh, no, I, I, I mean, it was very, very difficult in Brazil. I, I performed it there um, 
myself. I was the first person to perform it in English. Uh, and God, the press interest was incredible. The strain was amazing. Uh, I collapsed on stage during the last performance. My heart gave way because it was so stressful. But that that performance opened the way for Renata Caravaggio to perform the show in festivals all around Brazil. Um, to, to great hatred. I mean, it was astonishing. Uh, the very first performances were supposed to take place in a, in a, in a deserted chapel. that hadn't been used for years. But the fundamentalists managed to get that performance stopped. Luckily, the company found another place just 200 yards down the road. And what they did very beautifully was that they used this. They asked the audience to come to the original venue, and then they had a procession lit by candles down to the new venue. And not only that, but a group of women, pregnant women, women with young children, turned up and they said, we know we can't get tickets because it's been, been sold out immediately, but we want to form a circle of protection around Renata. And so that march, that walk to the new venue, became a march for LGBT rights. It became a march against censorship and just the most beautiful event. And that was the pattern throughout the three years that it toured all around Brazil. It encountered violent opposition. The very last festival production, two truckloads of armed military police turned up to try and prevent it. Uh, and Renata had so many death threats, so much fear, so much insult. Um, so it was both very, very frightening for everybody, incredibly powerful, sold out everywhere. Um, and yes, it has made Renata a big star, which is wonderful, but it has transformed the whole discourse around the use of trans performers in Brazilian theatre, Brazilian film, Brazilian television. And I am, and, and oh, every, every time I go to Brazil, I encounter trans women and they say to me, you have changed my life. You've made our lives so much better. And... Oh, I mean, that just uh, that makes me incredibly proud. How much better would your life have been if you could have transitioned uh, as a teenager when your, you first be, became, became aware of your gender identity, performing uh, as a, a, somebody who was being identified as a boy in the theatre, playing female characters? I know that was a... At the time, that was a moment of shame for you. Yeah, it was a moment of shame and a moment of great joy and discovery. Uh, and I kind of wished there'd been a drag scene around. I would have loved to be part of that. Uh, it would have transformed my life. It would have spared me many, many years of suffering. But also, it would have spared me the joy. I mean, I would never have had the joy of meeting, meeting my late wife, Susie, and having our daughters who... Oh, my God. I mean, they are the total joy of my life. It probably would have meant that I would never have become a proud father and a proud grandmother. And so, you know, although obviously a part of me really, <laughs> really regrets the fact I didn't transition early, another bit of me thinks, well, you know, that's life, isn't it? There's no room for regrets. And how grateful and thankful am I? I mean, me and Susie were were together for 33 years. She was the love of my life. And that is an incredible gift to have and to have known. Um, so I'm grateful for that. I love my daughters to bits. I'm so proud of them. 
they are so angry about what is happening at home and they are so supportive. Um, yeah, so there you go. <laughs> That's life, isn't it? Speaking of incredible gifts, the gospel according to Jesus, Queen of Heaven, is uh, a gift uh, for audiences. Uh, it is on at 45 downstairs, 45 Flinders Lane in the CBD, uh, until opening tonight, running through until the 29th of July, Tuesdays to Saturdays at 7.30pm, Sundays at 5pm. You can book by calling 9 double six two double nine double six that's nine double six two double nine double six uh you can go to 45 downstairs.com for details it's on as part of the midsummer festival which is running officially from the 21st of january until the 12th of february details at midsummer.org.au having seen the gospel according to jesus queen of heaven by my guest joe clifford last night i'm so glad i got to see it i heartily recommend it joe it's been a pleasure thanks for coming um, in a real pleasure thank you so much thank you you're listening to a triple r podcast discover more podcasts from triple r exploring science technology food books social issues politics and more to listen hit up the triple r website or your favorite podcast platform it's time for us to turn our attention to the visual arts again, but specifically the uh, the genre and the art form of photography. Jason Edwards is the only Australian photographer working for National Geographic and late last year uh, published a book called Icebergs to Iguanas, a beautiful kind of hardcover kind of presentation of his photographic journeys around the world, as the book is subtitled. Jason, welcome to Triple R. Thanks, Rich. How do you go from being a self-taught photographer who was first given a camera at, what, 14 by a, a relative to working for National Geographic many years later? Yes. It, look, my journey is a little bit unusual. When I finished high school, I was offered a position as a zookeeper with Melbourne Zoo, which is most people's dream if they're into animals, of course. And during my time there, I was with the zoo for 12 and a half years. And during that period, obviously, I was madly photographing wildlife and I decided to create a business to sell that work to magazines and book publishers. I was very obsessed with editorial photography at that point and over time my name trickled through the industry and started to get offers for assignments short at first two hours at a time and and then as, as you can imagine that builds up if you're successful and and eventually I came onto the radar of, of National Geographic in Washington. And what, you now work for them on a freelance base or kind of on contract? Or? Yes, on, on contract. So I've, I've been with them for 21 years. So I work for a variety of our divisions from all the editorial books, magazines, things like that, uh, digital expedition work, uh, television. So depending on who I'm working for is depends on where I am on the planet. You must have found then lockdowns in, what, 2020, 2021, a bit of a challenge creatively. Creatively, it was devastating, I think, is probably the best way to put it for me. I, I lost about 20 assignments, I think, but it was great to be here and trapped with my family. But uh, as I'm sure you, you know the creative genre well, it's, we're not normally built for that type of environment. Uh, I'm not sure how your family are going to take to the word being trapped with them. But <laughs> <laughs> right. Better than being trapped with, I don't know, a tiger. Uh, well, but... that's exactly right. Well, the irony was is that I, I, I had my family with me. They travel with me on a geographic assignments on occasion and, and we were in Argentina dancing with hundreds of thousands in Carnival. We finished the assignment, came home and 30 hours later, ScoMo closed the borders. So we didn't rush home. That was just the timing. 
Mm. Was being at home for an extended period one of the things that was the catalyst for this book then? Did it give you time to actually think about your body of work and how to present it? Um, yes and no. The book I actually began, I built the team before lockdown happened, not knowing lockdown was coming, of course. I think my dream of sitting by the, the pool in Carlton and, and drinking rosé in the afternoon and going through my field journals didn't pan out during lockdown. Uh, but I think the book that came out of the lockdown process was different in that there was probably a deeper analytical dive into to those past memories and the journey was quite emotional, far more emotional than I envisaged what was going to happen. And the book does use extracts from your, your travel diaries, travel journals. For, for, talk to us about selecting text. Was there... Were you ever concerned that the images would not speak for themselves and that they needed text to accompany them, given thinking about the way images are presented in National Geographic magazine, for example, where yeah. there's usually a fair bit of accompanying text to, to give background? That That's exactly the... And, I mean, I'd, I'd be the first person to say that as a creative, I, you never lose that insecurity. So you're always hoping that the images you take tell the story without text. That's the goal. But going through the journals, I actually never read a page once I've written it in the field. So when I went back through the journals, I didn't read everything, only the text that pertain to those stories. And some of those stories have been going for three decades. So that was uh, fascinating to see who I was at that time, but also to see how it married up with the imagery that we were selecting for the book. Well, let's talk about some of the imagery. And Despite the fact that the, the book is titled Icebergs to Iguanas, I want to start with uh, a photographic series depicting uh, where ships go to die. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a wonderful quote in there from a ship captain, I think, uh, after a ship has been deliberately run aground so it can be broken up and used as scrap and so forth. It was like, it was a ship, now it's just a piece of metal. That's, yes. That's a, a beautiful but heartbreaking way to encapsulate his experience. Yes, and and I the, one of the interesting things with the the shipbreaking story is that as a as a young lad I'd seen a, a very one-sided depiction of shipbreaking in the media and and really laying blame on the people not the source of where the ships come from. So I I endeavored when I got older to make a couple of years available to go there and then having the opportunity to see that other side of it with ship captains really painted that picture of the connection between them and those vessels, which they, they perceive as being entities. And it was quite quite heartbreaking to see that change for them. They, they were quite devastated, to be honest. There's one image in particular that uh, looks like something from the set of a dystopian science fiction film. Mm. Talk to us about what it feels like to be witnessing something as vast as an ocean-going kind of uh, container ship being kind of cut up in front of you. Yes. Well, I mean, when I first... It's, it's so difficult to get into these yards and when I first smuggled and bribed my way into them, you're walking along beaches that, are, that appear like they're covered in snow and it's asbestos. You know, you're just kicking it out of the way. And, and there's so much ambient pollution in the air that you feel like you're in the junkyards of Ord Mandel or something from Star Wars, you know, and uh, and you're simultaneously watching what is probably humanity's greatest act of recycling. They take everything from the vessels, everything, whilst watching them create a biologically dead ocean through the waste of, of well-developed nations. And, and every night... It was just a, a, a process of just head in hands trying to get your head around that juxtaposition and the fact that you'd turn up the next day and 30 men would have died in an oil fire and, and the shipyard would be closed, you know, so you couldn't go in and work. 
and then you come back the next day trying to tell a story about those people with all the language barriers and the cultural barriers and and the resentment also too for for who I was and I'm I'm a white I'm a white person documenting something that we've created in a faraway country. Yeah. What's harder to document a story like that that is a human story albeit a human story that is far removed from uh, that of perhaps many of the people who will buy this book mm-hmm. as opposed to documenting uh, a story in in I know on the savannas of Africa. Yes. Well, I mean the when you're doing natural history stories, wildlife stories, which is a lot of what I do, if you're doing something, say, in the Serengeti, it's, it's, you see hardship and there's, there's always conflict and social issues, but it's wonderfully beautiful and, and uplifting for the soul because every day is about trying to create something beautiful or some natural behaviour. Uh, when you're doing the equivalent story in something like bushmeat markets in, in the Amazon... Every day they're replacing wildlife with more endangered wildlife and the wildlife's either dead or distraught or or terrified. That is so different from photographing a story of our own species, you know, the connection, if you don't have the empathy for that. And I'd go as far as to say for myself, I think I've never really been able to create that separation emotionally between myself and the stories that I document. So for people... I I want to be a part of their lives and a part of their stories, but I'm also not sometimes probably as objective as I should be when I'm doing those stories. Some photographers have that ability. What kind of personal toll does uh, that take if you can't kind of close off or, or, or separate yourself from a story, whether it's watching animals uh, being sold for bushmeat and knowing what not only their individual fate is, but the fate of their species, for mm. example, or watching kind of, come, as you said earlier, coming back to a, a work site knowing that 35 workers had died there. Mm. What toll does that take on you? The, the emotional toll is something most people don't realise is a monumental price to do what I do. I've been on the road for 35 years and, and much of what I do I'm alone, so you have to be able to get up again the next morning and do it all again and I'm not there to make the news I'm just there to document it so my personal opinions whether I'm running um, uh, I'm running with people who are doing terrible things or with people who are trying to save the planet those opinions stay with myself but in in the cold dark hours of the night you know you you can you can drink a lot of whiskey trying to to hide the horrors that you've seen and then get up again and be objective again because I'm not there to pass my opinion. I I have to work with the people, whomever they are, no matter what my beliefs are, to tell that story that needs to be told. Jason, in terms of developing an eye as a photographer, what advice would you have for young people who might be listening who are intrigued by photography as a career and want to go beyond just kind of using their phone to record what's in the world around them? I mean, there's a cliche where they say every frame makes you better, but it's, but it's actually true. I'm, I'm sure it's of people who write or paint or, or create music. The more you do, the better you get at it. But we always had at Geographic a, a bit of a philosophy of if you want to tell stories for National Geographic, photograph your own suburb for five years. Not that we'll publish it, but it will show us how you told that story. So always pick locations that are easy to get to, that you can repeatedly go back to for, for limited cost. Because it's fine to save up your money and say, I'm going to go here or there and shoot that for Geographic. But at the end of the day... There might be someone like me or even more experienced who they know is a, uh, can do the job uh, without question. 
So, you know, really focus on the storytelling, you know, look for different angles and probably not Google everything. I mean, I I don't do that when I go to a site, you know. I don't want to see how other photographers have necessarily documented what I'm about to do. I want to see it for myself. Do you then look at other photographers' work perhaps afterwards to compare what you've identified and seen to what they have? No, <laughs> that just messes with my head because everyone has different lengths of time. Sometimes I might have three hours when people think I have three weeks or three days when people think I have three months or vice versa. So the, I, have a, I stopped buying photography books very early in my career and then started again once I felt I'd developed a, a, enough foundation in myself that I wasn't going to be overly influenced. Now I have an enormous collection, but most of the books are not about the subject matter that I shoot because I want to see how other photographers are, are seeing their world, not how people are seeing the same things I'm seeing. My guest is uh, Australian photographer Jason Edwards, and we're talking about his book Icebergs to Iguanas, but also about his career as a photographer for National Geographic. Jason, in terms of the work that National Geographic does as an organisation, how significant do you think uh, its role is in opening people's eyes to the beauty of the world, but also the fragility of the world. Mm. I think there's never been and probably will never be with the change in industries a, a collection of imagery that will have documented our place in the world more than National Geographic has done. Our archives in Washington go back more than 150 years to the to the birthplaces of photography and everyone has known something from Geographic and I think without that people wouldn't be aware of not only the, the great things and the science and all of those things that we document, but also those harder stories that people need to know about because not everyone gets to travel. And what I do is a privilege. I'm well aware of that. And uh, so it's my responsibility and Geographic's responsibility, I think, to disseminate knowledge and to be an objective voice for those for those regions and people and ecosystems that people don't get to see. Now, in your travel, you I mean, when you head overseas on an assignment, you might have to pack, what, uh, uh, gear for hot weather, cold weather, mm. extremely cold weather, mm. uh, scuba gear. Talk to us about the, 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 what it feels like to be kind of in an alien environment on the other side of the world and knowing that it's your job to do justice to capture images of that environment mm. for the rest of the planet. Yeah. So I just returned from the sub-Antarctic islands like a week ago. And this is such a remote part of the world. Sometimes like 100 people from Earth get there. And I've got that responsibility to try and show that story in the time that I have under the permits that I'm working. And... The pressure that you can feel trying to do it justice can be overwhelming. So you have to temper that with, well, I've got this amount of time in this lighting conditions and these animals are appearing or they're not appearing. And you need to have the background, whether it's wildlife or the culture or whatever, to know, to make the best of the opportunity you've got. But also too, I think it's something that I'm only learning now that I can't get it all. You know, that's not my role is to get it all, but for a long time that's how I felt, that I had to get it all. I had to maximise their coin or my coin to be in a region. But you can't. You can't get it all. So you, you're looking for a handful of frames. You know, you're not looking for 10,000 or 20,000, even if you take it. You're looking for a handful of frames that tell a story about a place that you've been. 
In terms of selecting the images for this book, mm. talk to us about that process, because yep. uh, given your body of work over, what, three decades, mm. that in itself is a pretty monumental challenge to condense <laughs> it down. <laughs> well, I mean, we didn't really know where to begin, so when I sat down with the editors at the start, we thought, what would be a premise for the book? So we, I said, well, what about stories that meant something to me emotionally, that really sung to me as, as the person who created them? And I sat down one day at my dining table with a pen and piece of paper and no imagery and wrote a list off the top of my head of 40 stories that meant something to me. And then we picked 16 and I went to the journals on 16. And so, you know, the goal is everyone hopes that this will become a series. So there's eight in this first, uh, eight stories in this first. Some of them are split into multiple stories, so there's sort of technically more than eight. But to then go back to that body of work when you can't have everything for those stories. I'm governed by the same premise that Nat Geo is governed by. I can't have all the images that I want. There might be a gatefold or there might be a, a, a gutter in the middle of the picture, so it doesn't work. So you really have to uh, do a lot of... Uh, we call them wall walks, where you print everything out and you sit them on a wall and see how the story runs, and then you put them on the floor, and then you drink a lot of wine, and then you find another picture that's better than something else you've had or five pictures, and you swap things in and out. And, and I think that was one of... The benefits, if I could use that term lightly, of lockdown was that it gave us more time to to lay out those stories as best as we could because it's it's enormously difficult to cull your children. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a writer who constantly hears the phrase kill your darlings, I know exactly yeah, yeah, what you mean. That's right. um, it's beautifully designed. Uh, it's... The term coffee table book is bandied around a lot and sometimes frivolously, mm. but this is a, a book that is designed to be an object of art. Would that be fair to say? I think so. I hope so. That, that was my intent, I guess. I wanted people to see how I told the stories, my, what my vision was in the space that I had. And, uh, again, some of these stories are ongoing and will, will be other projects in their own right. But I'm hoping that people see the art in what I created and most importantly we spent a lot of time colour correcting the images so that they married up with the with the negative or with the Kodachrome transparency or the, the digital file. I didn't want a book of Instagram images, I wanted a book that looked like I saw it at the time even if that was in 1990. Yeah, it's a hefty tome, it's about <laughs> 400 pages, hardcover, um, Kind of, uh, you could knock somebody out with this, but you <laughs> yes. could also blow them away, I think, with the images that are contained within. The book is called Icebergs to Iguanas, Photographic Journeys Around the World by Jason Edwards, a National Geographic photographer for many years. Uh, if you want to order a copy, Jason, people can go directly to your website. They can, thank you, yes. Yeah, so that's www.jasonedwards.co. Yes, uh, So... Yep. Uh, jasonedwards.co to order a copy of Icebergs to Iguanas, a beautiful 400-page-plus hardcover book of exquisite photography retailing for $125 uh, and I'm sure will be available in good independent bookstores as well as directly from your website. It will in the coming months, but if people want to get a, a signed copy before it goes to retail, jump online and, and I'll, I'll dedicate the book to you. jasonedwards.co to get your hands on a copy of Icebergs to Iguanas. Jason, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Rich. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 